the Diary of a CTO podcast. Sharing the secrets of successful CTOs. Brought to you by Trimor, the home of technology recruitment. Hosted by Guy Bevington. Paolo, welcome. Thanks for coming. Yeah, thank you. Cheers, thank cheers, you. cheers. Cheers. Happy Monday. Oh, that's nice. Refreshing. Yeah. Um, so, Paolo, thank you for being here with us today. Uh, so, by way of introduction, you are currently the head of engineering for Confir. And Confir is a very exciting tech startup company um, that has been streamlining the employment verification process, um, amongst other things, in a very innovative way. So it'd be really great to go into a little bit more about the work you're doing there today. Um, prior to Confir, you have had multiple kind of senior engineering and um, team lead positions for companies such as um, Soprasteria. Uh, fluidly, solid state group, so a number of different companies. So clearly you've been there, done that, got the T-shirt when it comes to uh, being an engineering leader. Um, and uh, one of the things we've spoken about in the past, which I think is a really interesting uh, thing that you're doing over at Confer, is um, around your production environment. And uh, I think it's quite a unique setup, what you've created there. So uh, really keen to discover a little bit more about that as we uh, as we go through the episode today. But before we kickstart into that it'd be great just to start with with you really find out a little bit about uh you know you your background how you got into tech leadership in the first place and um and yeah go from there great thank you very much uh, guy for having me you're more than welcome so how did i start actually i've got a good story because i almost didn't get into it <gasps> Um, Shock horror. <laughs> what happened? So, uh, so I'm French. So I've been like uh, for the first 20, 21st years, 22 first years of my life in France. Uh, and then moved to Switzerland and, and the UK. We can come back to that later. So when I was in, at Ecole des Mindales, it's an engineering school. And it's, a, it's what we call generalists. So they like try to uh, teach you like business, marketing, like all of that stuff and also like hard skills. So it was construction, production, like IT. So there were like different things. Mm -hmm. And I was quite good at materials, like all like yeah, everything about materials, right? And I was like interested into that. Um, but one of my friends uh, said, look, Paolo, you have the choice between like materials or IT. And then he showed me like the job, like, job listing of IT and materials. <laughs> and, and that brought it home. Yeah, and then he said, like, look, you have, like, a, I don't know, a hundred, like, job posts for IT and only, like, five for materials. Which mm. one you should do? And I was like, all right, let's go for IT. Fair enough. But that's, that's a good friend. You must, uh, yeah, he's a good friend. You're a lot of him to thank for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm still in contact with him. So that was interesting. So, yeah, chose IT, but I remember, like, at the beginning, it was really hard to understand everything about... So I, I love tech, you know. I love computer, I love... But I was mostly younger, I was mostly like a consumer of it. So video gaming, for instance, or like all the apps and et cetera, like the mobile was great. Um, and when I started like to develop really real application, it was really hard for me to understand like, oh, actually now I need to code and what is a variable, you know, I don't understand really like our network and et cetera. Mm. But then the more I was going into it, like the better I, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, and so I just like pour a lot of time into it, like to understand like coding and architecture. I think I've always been interested into like more how things work together. Yeah. So like more architecture, you know, like all the layers and understanding like how things are connected together rather than pure code. I, I can code, right? But I was more interested into that, like system architecture, system design. Interesting. So yeah, when I joined Soprasteria, I was a developer, you know, like uh, working for different projects. Mm -hmm. Uh, mainly public sector, and quickly, I had, so I, my mentor was a, an architect, software architect, and quickly I just like love uh, the job because, as I said, like I love like system architecture. Um, yeah, it was at the time where we were doing BPM, you know, business process modeling. There, are, there were plenty of framework, frameworks like that, uh, rules engine, so, uh, yeah, all of that stuff, and for public sector, and um, so after that, I moved. So I did two years in France. Uh, then I moved, uh, my wife like found a, a job in Switzerland, okay. so I, I followed her and uh, did four years in Switzerland, so across multiple like uh, projects again, public sector, telco. Uh, I actually like the telco project was really interesting because that was the first project I really uh, started from 
like the beginning, you know, like when we so surprisingly so like a service agency, right? We are doing services like for customers. Yeah. So we define the project like we have a very structured way like of how we do projects, inception, like a definition, conception, test, and extra. And so it was the first time I went through like, yeah, the conception of it until like releasing it, even like supporting it production. Mm. And that was, yeah, the really first project, like we were a team of three or four to doing that. Uh, and it was, uh, I had a lot of learnings actually. Yeah, on, yeah, yeah. On seeing it all the way through from conception yeah. to delivery. I Especially bet. when you release in production and then it doesn't properly work. You know, yeah. <laughs> you're like, ah, now I need to support that. Like, uh, yeah, I had to do like weekends a bit more. Like, obviously, like uh, even like a bank holidays to make it work. But yeah, so quite a good learnings here. Um, all in Java, right? All of that was in Java. And then I moved to the UK again, following my wife. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> She's taking you all over the world. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> yeah. And what uh, when I joined uh, the UK, Superstar UK, what happened is I joined the digital innovation team. So we it was like a small team uh, of like we were five or six, where we tried to bring like new ways of working to uh, across Superstar. Okay. Um, so it was the rise of you know. 2016, I mean, the rise, it was already there, but like the rise for other bigger companies of UX, product management, uh, DevOps, you know, DevOps was, again, OCR, right? But for bigger companies, it's like more complicated, like it was slower to take off. Yeah, sure. So uh, AWS and et cetera. Um, so yeah, like we had a, quite a lot of different projects around there. Um, VR, AR, blockchain also, uh, and actually uh, GPT. Uh, I had one of my colleagues uh, who worked at GPT before ChatGPT. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah, It was uh, interesting because it was hard to get the data for GPT or to get the algorithm. You had to sign up and like do a bunch of stuff. Mm. Now it's like everyone can sign up and chat GPT and it works. Absolutely, yeah. So yeah, so I discovered all of that. um, But then I realized after two years, we were more talking about it rather than doing it. Uh, You know, it's like harder and like you have more like mass to change in a bigger company. So I wanted to join a startup to start applying all of that, all of what I was uh, doing. Uh, and so that's why I joined Fluidly. So as a senior software engineer, and so this is like where I dropped completely Java, always Python and JavaScript, was quite hard. Um, but this is where I learned a lot about product management and how to build a product. Uh, it's completely different than being like a, a project base um, because yeah, project base is all about estimate and getting right in the budget and extra. Yeah. Uh, in products, it's about like making money, right? Yeah, yeah. But making money, like it doesn't really matter how much, many hours you pour into it. It's, yeah, the product has to, to work, right? Mm. To make revenue. Ultimately, I get the me- methodology probably is very different to uh, sort of presumably working a lot more of an agile. Oh uh, yeah, fashion. like it definitely. Like in, in product, you know, everything is based on bigger, and in software like everything is based to have a repeatable process. Uh, when you're a startup, you also kind of have a repeatable process and we can get into it when we talk about the production only mm-hmm. and how we work at Confer, but you're still more like agile, right? You have to, if tomorrow a client comes and, cli- and says, I want that, and he's your, like, it's your biggest client, then you have to do it. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. can't just... Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so join Fluidly, uh, became like a, also a squad lead, uh, a squad like as in Spotify squads, you know, we are like a three different squads. Cool. Um, so like with a cross functional team, uh, with product managers, sales engineers, and, uh, and we also had DevOps. Um, so yeah, like two years there. And then I kind of, after two years at Fluidly, I got back to an agency actually. So solid state. Okay. So at least software engineer, um, solid state was, uh, like, I mean, is, um, but my time like was great because they are the primary like clients are startups. So they take like really early stage startup uh, and they build a software for them. And all the people there had this product mentality, even it's an agency, it's a project for them, for Solid State overall. It's still like a, um, yeah, a product mentality. Interesting. So even like, I think all the people at Solid State created a product on the side, uh, either working or like in, like in the process of working. So okay. yeah, very good uh, mindset. Um, actually built two projects here. Uh, big projects where I also introduce uh, production only. Okay. So yeah, even for Better clients. theme going Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, And uh, yeah, Fluidly was the first time I got introduced to, to production only. Okay. And then, uh, yeah, join Confer like 
uh, Chris uh, just like uh, contacted me because I, I worked with him, uh, and uh, he's so, like, yeah, I was very involved with the with the tech part and how we should deliver and how to make sure like we we have a successful like uh, company. So he offered me a role and, and then I accepted. So I joined in March 2022. We were only the four of us, mainly the leadership team, uh, and then we had to recruit uh, for engineers and product manager and the UX. So now we are a team of 10, uh, 14, I would say, with uh, some contractors, legals, etc. Um, yeah, so that's where am I am today, so, so head of engineering at Confer. Awesome, cool, thanks for that. Really interesting. I, I like your, um, your, your story there around how you started, well, how you got into tech in the first place and uh, following the salary, love that. <laughs> but the, the fact that you kind of uh, fell in love with the, the architecture and, like you say, it feels like you've always had that sort of more holistic overview of, of spotting the you know more of a product mindset you know how what you're doing relates to the business whereas very often in technology i found certainly the thing that sort of hampers uh, very strong coders ability to get into leadership positions is very often they they love that piece they're very analytically minded and they love the you know the the coding and and sort of you know that, that piece is kind of really fulfilling but then don't really enjoy necessarily or, or able to make that transition into what they're doing on a day-to-day -day basis, how that actually relates into the, the business and sort of understanding the bigger business problem and that kind of thing. But it seems like that was always quite a natural mindset for you uh, for, from day one. Would you say that's fair? Yes, definitely. Um, if I'm being honest, like, I don't know, for instance, coding another, like, logging screen, like, that's, I mean, like, yeah, I find it boring now. Okay. Quite boring, you know. It's, it's uh, again, another screen or another form, you know, it's uh, so like the tech is evolving and it's great. And we, we again, for production, we can talk about that a bit later. Like uh, that's that's amazing what the tech does. Right. But yeah, I prefer like understanding. I prefer like I'm, I'm more focused on what can bring value. Right. How tech can bring value to someone. So when I think it's it's powerful when you see like a client says, I want to do that. Uh, for instance, like employment checks, for instance, I confer how we do. Right. And when they see a system that actually does it automatically and super fast, they are super happy mm. and they are willing to pay for it. And I think that's what it's actually really interesting. Mm. Um, yeah, to see the, the people using tech because it, it really like fulfills the pain yeah. uh, in our everyday job. Yeah. Um, a, a bit like, for instance, uh, GitHub Copilot, right? Mm. It's also like fulfilling a big need yeah, 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 <laughs> in developer jobs. Yeah. And as I said, like I, I was most I, at first, like when I was young, I was consuming things and I always like was fascinated by all those applications, you know, all what we can do, like everything online, for instance, and being part of that, like now creating things online is always like, yeah, for me is, is good. When I was a public sector also, I was uh, kind of feeling really interested on and really invested into building those applications for the public sector because it helps like people, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just like every day, like instead of going to your um, uh, to an office where you have to wait or you have to to take a, uh, an appointment, and so it's very slow. Why not doing everything online? Mm. And yeah, when, when when I was public sector, I, I always thought about helping just people and you know, everyday people that makes an impact. So yeah, and. Same system like architecture. Also, like I think I always like ask, how does this work? I, I can't just say, oh yeah, it works and that's it. So I think, for instance, like at the beginning, I was using Spring Spring Boot. Oh, yeah. I mean, Spring Boot didn't exist at that time, but yeah, Spring, yeah. Uh, Spring and Hibernate, yeah. um, ORMs. Back in the day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I I couldn't just say I use it, right? Yes, I use it, but how does it that work inside, right? Uh, how like is it mapped to the database? How does it work with performance? Mm. Why is it better than something else? Mm. Uh, why not re recreating our own RMs? Mm. Um, so yeah, always interesting to how things are working together. And the more now I'm doing like leadership role and uh, managing people, I'm always thinking also how things work when, you, when with people. Like sure. what is the best process for people to work together? To be efficient and to have fun, so yeah, always interesting to systems rather than like the pure code. Nice, I love that. <clears throat> and I just to reiterate, I think that's really when I think back through all the leaders that I've seen that have you know I really respect and have gone on and achieved great things. I think it is that that mindset, that sort of more holistic mindset that um, really kind of rings true. And um, I'd love to 
find out a little bit more in a moment about Confere and let's talk a little bit about that environment that you um, brought into so many so many places now and uh, so many smiles on faces as a result. But um, let's start by talking a little bit about your leadership style, I suppose. So when, when you talk about creating an environment, a fun environment, a great place for people to work, what, what qualities do you aspire to to have as a, a tech leader? Um, you know, what are the most valuable qualities that you think a tech leader should possess? It's a hard question <laughs> because there are so many ways of yeah leading people, right? Um, but I think I, I, I've tried to find three of them that were like the most important. Um, so the first one is, for me, is ability to navigate in the unknown. Um, so when you are at a leadership role, or as a, <clears throat> sorry, as a leader, you don't have the answers to everything. You never, and you will never have it. Um, so you can replicate things that have been done in other companies. Like, so every company is unique, right? So some of the things are more unique than others, right? You can replicate things that are working in other companies to your company, how you manage people, how you do the process, how you deliver, and et cetera. But there is not one unique way of it working. And what, what works in another company can maybe not apply, like work in your company. So this ability to navigate the unknown is really important, is researching things a lot. Um, also, like, weigh the pros and cons and things and make decisions, even if you don't know everything. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, it's funny because I think it's what separates, like, yeah, a bit more leaders than uh, employees Mm. Uh, when I was an employee, I was always turning to my manager and ask like all the questions. Well, yeah, we should do this and we should do that. And my manager always seemed to have the all the answers, mm. but actually, he he didn't know himself, right? He's trying <laughs> yeah. to figure out things. Yeah. Uh, but as an employee, you feel like that confidence from your leader. Mm. You think like, but yeah. So that's one one thing like the leader being able to to navigate that and find the answers yeah but I think it's, it's, it's on that point sorry to interrupt but I think it's, it's the thing that separates good leaders in my mind is not it's the fear of um, not necessarily making the wrong decision it's just like you say making a decision and then let's hope it's the right decision based on all the analysis I've done and all the information I've got right now but don't let that you know disable you from taking action and moving forward because you know worst case scenario it's a learning curve isn't it yeah, you learn what hasn't worked as well as you do what, what has worked so I totally agree with that I think that's very true in recruitment as well and it's about being also transparent to how you make that decision because the yeah. more transparent you are, the, the better like people will understand. Yeah, yeah. And then they will just, you know, be on board with the decision, mm. right? And also like creating, and if the decision is wrong, as you said, like, all right, it's wrong, but creating a safe space around like having mistakes, yeah. it's fine. You know, like what is not fine is like not learning from it, Yeah. right? I mean, you kind of make mistakes where you can like... <laughs> Uh, bring down the business, right? You shouldn't do it, yeah. right? Like, obviously. <laughs> Ideally not. <laughs> so that's why you there is preparation, yeah. always. Uh, and that's why, like, you always research and et cetera. But if you make a mistake after that, it's learning from it. Uh, going back to production only, but we have post-mortems and we learn, we, we make sure in, at Confer we have a lot of learnings every time we do, like, mistakes. So we don't happen uh, after that. Nice. Fantastic. Cool. Sorry, I interrupted that. So that was the, the, the first part yeah. you said about um, qualities of leader and then... Um, yeah. yeah. So the two of us, like the second one, would be like uh, motivation, like being able to motivate people. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people remember when their managers are like, yeah, uh, motivate people. Like when you are a boring manager, it's like nobody remembers really. Mm. Um, and it's again like um, because it's hard a startup. You know, you you pour a lot of work and it works or it doesn't work. It's always this constant, like, and giving this constant energy to just, like, say to the teams, hey, yeah, it's fine. Like, let's continue. Let's work together. We'll make it and we'll, we'll, we'll do great uh, work together. So always have motivate the team. That's an important one. Yeah, very um, true. Very true. And I think that's, I totally agree with you. And I think it, that's one that's definitely easier said than done, isn't it? I think it's, um, well, not easier said than done. I think it's something that's necessarily, um, don't have to be 
manipulative with the way you motivate. I think very often it is, like you say, it's like almost like a transference of passion, isn't it? You know, like if, if you're not energized and motivated in a way, it's very difficult to motivate others. Um, and I think very often people think leadership is about just telling people what to do, you know, and sort of directing people down a route. But actually, to really get the best out of somebody, you kind of need to light that fire in them, don't you? Sort of inspire them in, in a way. Um, and I think it's difficult to do that unless they kind of feel you're in the in the same boat, you know, kind of in the, in the journey with them. Um, so, yeah, I really agree with that one as well. And uh, bouncing on what you just said, like, yeah, tell people, like, even if you are passionate and you tell people, it doesn't work because it's also like, listening to people what what it's motivating for them yeah. like sometimes you like for instance i love like product right um but when you try to hire like i don't know like a data engineer for instance right um they care more about data and maybe tech right but it's fine you know as long as we focus on the right work to do together we do the right prioritization and the work we do like creates value for clients Yes, that's the most important. But yeah, li listening is also when you try to motivate, you have to listen to what other like are motivated by, and so you can answer to those yeah. Uh, needs. Yes, yeah, yeah, very good point. Yeah, absolutely. And was there a third so the, in the trilogy? Yeah, third <laughs> one. Um, I think it's something I learned uh, quite a lot is ability ability to communicate to uh, with stakeholders with anyone in the business. Yeah, yeah. Um, often, when we are engineers we think a lot in black and white. You know, it works or it doesn't. Yeah. Uh, especially when we are young, you know, we code things and and actually we are measured by that, right? It's, we are measured by, is your feature working or not? Yeah. So everything is a bit black and white and we assume that because it's tech and it's hard stuff, like we assume that other people can can understand why some things are hard uh, and, it's, and it's normal, right? It's hard and... You don't have to explain yourself. Mm. Um, but, you know, product people, like, it's not their job. It's not their job to, or like uh, leadership, you know, it's not their job to understand how tech works. Yeah. So you have, as a, as a tech lead, uh, or even as an engineer, right, communicate with those people and make it understandable yeah. and connect the dots between what are the needs of the business with with how we can solve it with tech and why we should take a path compared to the other because yeah it's 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 not easy for like anyone to understand tech yeah so yeah, ability yeah. to communicate is really important yeah i couldn't agree with you more i think if there was one trait i would pick over the last kind of 10 years that i think has become more most important really in technology and especially with the rise of you know like ai large language models and that kind of thing where a lot of the the, the, the grunt work necessarily GitHub Copilot, exactly. Um, it's been taken out of, um, of engineering. That ability to kind of wrap some soft skills around it, communicate, you know, like I say, stakeholder engagement, I think has become the most important skill, uh, certainly when stepping into leadership, but I think just actually, generally speaking, across the board, I think it's a very, very important thing. And I think it's also in leadership as well, uh, a really fine line between uh the ability to do that but also not coming across in a overly patronizing way where you know, people feel like you, you know you're just you're pandering to and sort of mansplaining something um for a, you know but actually being able to kind of really and i think it's your your point there of really having respect for the product and understanding the business problem if you can relate it back to to that then people can uh, very often sort of understand things a little bit better but no i think it is a very important skill to develop as a leader but well, quite a tricky one to to get right especially when you're dealing with different personalities different personality types that maybe sometimes don't want to feel like they're having everything explained to them but still need to understand you know, what, what's going on yeah i mean like it's let's use ChatGPT. i think it's a good one right uh, when you have to craft a message or whatever like just Uh, ask ChatGPT like prompt you say like I want to say this and this is the message I wanted like can you make it more formal or like yeah. make it more fun and yeah use ChatGPT right it's uh, it's it's there right you have the knowledge of of the world like all of the internet and it crawled a lot of data so it knows yeah. Um, yeah so yeah communicating is important and as you said like not patronizing is important too Um Going back to listening again to yeah. to people, uh, that's why it's it's a hard question, right? Because yeah, yeah, as a leader, yeah. you need all like a lot of skills. Um, that's why I ask it. But li <laughs> yeah, listening is yeah is key too, right? Uh, because when when you are also like a tech lead, you have a lot of strong opinions generally on how things should be done, yeah. and that's why you are in this leadership role because you you move things. Uh, 
but you don't do everything alone. Mm-hmm. Um, you like the team is here, right? The team is everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, like every everyone has a job to do. Everyone like is making the success. So listening and even things are not the way you think it is. It doesn't mean it doesn't. It's not right. It's it like it's probably um, true and and correct uh, more because they are like day to day with the job and day to day with the features. Um, compared to us, like where we are a bit more, you know, like recruitment or like infosec or other things. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, okay. Let, let's get on to talking a bit about Confira's business things. I think that's going to be, uh, and, and then we can hear all about your fantastic uh, environment that you've built. Um, so, as a, a business, so Confira is streamlining that um, employee verification process, which, let's face it, I think we've all been through in some way, shape, and form, and, and often it can be quite a manual, quite a painful, time-consuming process. So how are you guys going about that, first and foremost? And and then, yeah, let's talk a little bit about how you're approaching it from an engineering perspective and, and talk a bit about your uh, your production environment. So, um, yeah, tell us a little bit about it in the first instance and how you're uh, how you're tackling that problem for uh, for the world. Sure. So, Confer, we, so it's a company that has been created in 2021. Uh, the product as it is now has been like uh, releasing August 2022. It went through different iterations. Uh, we have like several clients, paid clients now. Um, so the process is, uh, yeah, streamlining employment reference, as you said. Let's take before Confer, right? So everyone... BK. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> everyone, I mean, not everyone, but like a majority of people are doing background checks when you start a new job. So you go through different checks, ID verification, DBS checks, criminal records, financial conduct authority, FCA checks, could be directors of company, uh, all depending on the checks. And one of which is employment reference, like where did you work the last three to five years? And this process uh, is done by what we call background checkers. So generally companies don't do it themselves, they outsource that to background checkers. Yeah. Uh, and these background checkers, although like they, they are doing it, uh, but today it's like not great experience, right? Yeah. They are making more money on other checks that are automated, but this one is not automated. What they generally do is they go on Google, right? And they type the, com- the name of the company, find a phone number, find an email address, and then contacts and then try to work through the chain to find a hiring manager or like an HR to be able to prove the employment of the person, of the candidate. Mm. So obviously they create like, they start to automating things, right? They create like email automation, SMS automation. They also build a database of contacts so they can be faster the next time. But it's still very manual and they still have to review the, what the person said on, on this candidate. So this is slow and, and not even secure. Like sometimes they ask for bank statements or like pay, pay slips through email. So email, yeah, yeah. so you yeah, can just true. lose the email or transfer the email and everybody has access to the information. So not, not secure. Yeah. So Chris found this opportunity to streamline uh, the, the process. And so instead of we are reversing everything, like flipping it on its head, instead of like going to the employer, we thought about it, right? But we don't do some, anything different than what they do today. Mm. We decided to go through the candidates. And we have those data sources available to us that can create a picture of the candidates. So it could be like today, we've got like two data sources, open banking and payroll. So what we do, we send a, the candidate an SMS on behalf of the background checker so we can do customization, you know, like we are, or we can be integrated for an API. Uh, so we are behind the scenes. It's not our brand there. It's like the brand of the background checker. Yeah, um, yeah white, white labeling. Uh, exactly. That's what, the, what was the word? <laughs> That's what the word I was looking for. And what we do is we go through the confer, screen, confer journey. So it's like a set of screens where we tested like different things, you know, with like the tone of voice and, and we're still trying to refine it, like different A-B testing and et cetera, where we asked the candidate to connect their bank account and their payroll. And for bank account, we asked them through open banking and payroll, it's like 
direct payroll APIs. Yeah. Um, and after they connect, what happens is we pull the data. So everything is through consent, right? We, we don't do like on like behind people, right? Everything is through consent. We have to store the consent. We are like a GDPR compliant. We are ISO certified. Uh, we've got all, all the things right. We are also attribute service provider. Uh, it's like a government trust framework. Okay. So we give like those attributes. So we, we can do those attributes. Uh, so we can be like a processor or controller. Right. So yeah, everything is clean, secure. Uh, so we pull the data and then we start applying data science, you know, on top of his data. So I will give a very basic example. Uh, let's say we see like a payslip, uh, not a payslip, sorry, a banking transactions where like you have 12 payments from True North, right, uh, above 2,000 pounds. Uh, and last Friday of the month, you know, we say like, okay, guy, pretty certain you worked from for True North the last 12 months, mm -hmm. right? Uh, there is also like the, the, the issues with weekly pays, like different amounts, etc. But yeah. we apply data science on top of that banking okay. data to be able to find the like how long have you been in that company yeah. and who is that company. Sure. Um, payroll is a bit easier, you know, it's more structured data. Yeah. But then we need to combine this banking data in, and payroll data. So validate yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like it's like a, a waterfall approach, you know, like banking is like I would say the the minimum, right? And then if you add more like payroll yeah. and uh, like, or even like tax information would be amazing. You know, like you, you can build a full picture of the person like and instantaneously because when we connect, it's instantaneous. We process the data like straight away. Wow. So how does that, how does, that, does that take out of interest? We say instant. Is it like literally kind of? Yeah, uh, yeah. It's instant, right? Wow. I would say like even if you have like thousands, 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 it could be like maybe one minute, but yeah, yeah it's one minute. It's like you say, when you're thinking about actually that, that, historical manual process could take weeks. Yes. It, if not yeah, months. yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, we have a, with one of the clients actually, we brought down the like a, a turnaround time by like a, more than a week, more than wow. seven days down. Wow, crazy. So, and, and our candidates, you know, they go through the journey in five minutes, you know, some of them are like as, as quickly as two minutes. That's so. a good point as well, isn't it? Because you've got to make it not too laborious for the candidate side as well. So if you can make it frictionless on both ends, it's a huge value add isn't it yeah so that's what we're building at the moment and we are continuing to expand our data sources you know we think about of other data sources to bring in fca for instance um and continue like to automate and bring those insights on top of the of the data because we now we've already like capturing the data fast you know but we need to we go one step further is like automation of the review process so you can think a bit of like id verification yeah. You know, like when um, a company like um, ID verifier won't send the picture of the person or, and the video of the person and the picture of the passport to the company, right? Mm. They will do the checks themselves. Yeah. Like the ID verifier will just, yeah, all done. Mm. So now it's like you can focus on something else. And we want to do the same with employment checks. So we want okay. to do like make, not make the decisioning. We don't make the decision on whether this person is fit or not. Yeah. We don't do that. But what we want is like automate this process where they don't have to do it anymore. Sure. Um, and we don't like, we don't need like a manual person to review like every day and like, yeah. and then we can focus on something else more important for the business. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the last thing that we're trying to do also is we are thinking of us as a, you know, like your, as, as an attribute service provider. So tomorrow you can get your, employment history in a wallet, a bit like ID verification wallet, you know, yeah. or even Apple, you know, like driving license wallet, where tomorrow if you want to be uh, checked and you can be checked like in two minutes because you already have your credentials with us. So that's one, uh, one of the other things we are exploring too. That's cool. That's interesting. Yeah, some like a uh, guess, yeah, talk, talking about the products. Is that something on the roadmap that's yet to be, yet to be developed, sort of the, the next exciting yep. uh, tranche? Nice, cool. <coughs> yeah, I can really see the the need for the product, and it it feels like you're tackling an issue that well, it, it, let's face it, it's it's a global process, isn't it? Really, that's done everywhere, and and like I say, at the moment, done pretty much in the same archaic kind of out, outdated way. So um, yeah, I can definitely see the gap in the market for the product, and it, it feels like the way you're doing it feels it's a per, feels like a perfect example, really, of how tech and data can 
genuinely solve a problem like I say almost instantaneously if, if done in the right way and engineered in the right way so uh, yeah very exciting indeed um, which I guess leads us on to talking about how you're engineering um, the solution and, and the platform so talk us through we've obviously had a chat in uh, sort of previous meetings about um, your production environment how you guys are doing it um, but yeah talk us through from uh, the horse's mouth so to speak exactly how you're doing it and um, yeah go from there Thank you. So, yeah, I, I brought some stats. Uh, oh, I love a stat. Come on. Stats. Um, Intrigue me. Recently. So, on average, so we are a team of five engineers. Mm-hmm. So, I would say four and a half because I, I could, but not all full time. <laughs> we'll say five. Come Let's on. Let's say five. Don't put yourself down. Um, so, on average, we do 20 deploys a day. So, that means the product changed 20 times a day. Wow. Right. Uh, pull request stays up on average 30 minutes. That's including the front-end repository, and front-end is a bit hard to automate. So, like, if I take out the front-end, it's more like 10 minutes. So once a PR is up, it's, like, going in. Um, We have no downtime deployments. We are always up, right? So there is no, like, we stop the the product and the SaaS product, you know, and we say there is a downtime. No, it's, like, always up. And uh, our change failure rate uh, is over around 3%. So, and powerful stats. So those stats are um, the Dora metrics, right? I'm a I'm a big fan of like the Dora metrics, uh, the four the four key metrics to measure the uh, the performance of uh, engineering. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because these, these stats are so coming from Accelerate, the book Accelerate, it's been a, a research, you know, and uh, like it's how to to measure the efficiency of an engineering team uh, according like compared to the business, right? It's not just like velocity for the velocity, yeah. it's measuring the efficiency of a business as a whole and how, like, what metrics are uh, we need to measure for the engineering to make this business successful. So, yeah, that, that's why I'm following every month. Um, and so the way it works is today at Confer, we have only the production environment to be able to do those stats. Um, and we don't have any dev, we don't have any staging. Of course, we have the local environment, we have CI/CD, but every time we merge a pull request, five minutes later, it's in production. So, yeah, like every time I say that, a lot of people are like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, are sure? let's just close that door. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's genuinely unique. Obviously, I speak to a lot, of, um, a lot of companies on a daily basis and CTOs, heads of engineering that, you know, clearly have different types of production environment but I think that is particularly unique you know to kind of like submit a pull request and like I say five minutes later it's 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 live code and in production so I guess my next big question is how yeah so it's it's really it's about two things right the first thing is the mindset and creating products if you look at if you take the scrum for instance if you take scrum and you do sprints every two weeks. So I have a 52 weeks in the year, so you make 26 releases. Um, if you do 20 deploys a day, you do 20 times 52. I have two or 365, that's a big number. But you can approximately change whenever the course of what you are doing, right? Mm. Um, so we've been very agile, and it's about like having this mindset of where we care about our clients, yeah. And we care about like the speeds, uh, how we deliver it. Um, one of the good examples was we have a client that is integrating with our API and they ask a question around 10.15 in the morning. It's like, hey, I think I spotted an issue here. Can you change that for us out of field or whatever? And 15 minutes later, we're like, yeah, it's ready. Mm-hmm. So you don't lose time with a client. And actually they're like, oh, really, it's ready? And it's like, yeah, yeah, it's ready. You can use it. Uh, yeah, it works. Mm. Um, so we are quite impressed at that. And Absolutely, yeah. You just like, yeah, unlock their own teams to do things, right? Or if there is a bug somewhere, you just like fix it in five minutes. Yeah. Um, and it's also like the team caring about being, things being done, you know? When you have production only, like everybody thinks about production and the end client first. Yeah. Say that, yeah. Sometimes, I mean, a lot of engineers, you know, yeah, you know the famous meme, it works on my machine. Yeah. <laughs> um, and when you have a staging or, or dev, it's not, it works on my machine, but, oh, it worked in staging, you know. Mm. 
like one of the good examples is also is like database migration. So you do database migration, staging, all works really well. Uh, and then you push in production and the database migration is like endless. It locks your production database. And then like you are stuck and how do you kill? And then you need like a, a, an SRE to go to your database and then kill everything. And then you have downtime and extra. Because nobody thought like, oh yeah, actually we have one billion rows in production, but we have a thousand in staging. So it yeah. tunes the mindset of people to be focused on the end goal and on the client and the end goal and will it work in production rather than will it work in staging. And yeah. then, yeah, and, you know, it's this approach of owning end-to-end rather than just thinking, oh, it's now it's the time for QA or the tester to do it. No, yeah. it's like, no, it's your time to, like, right, you, you are doing end-to-end. You are conceiving it, you are designing it, developing it, you are releasing it. And yeah, you, you're the famous mantra, you build it and you run it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, like, and everyone is like being now careful, much more careful mm. with the features that they are developing rather than if it's a staging because staging actually is a safe environment. Yes. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. There is no two productions. Production is unique and you have to, I would say, control the beast, right? Yeah. You have to learn it you have to understand it how it reacts under like all those conditions you know doing performance testing again like you can fake it in staging but you can't fake like production is production like this spike of like having millions of customers i don't know for like a a, a shopify for instance would like have millions of customers on a black friday sales so yeah you have to learn to 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 use it and and understand how it reacts and how it performs um, so that's one thing, like the mindset of people, like thinking production first yeah. and thinking about this quality. Mm. And my, the second point is how is about quality, right? So when you remove staging, then you are removing a safety net. So you don't have this environment where you can test things. It's, 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 it's gone. So you have to find other ways of testing things. So instead of pouring a lot of effort into staging, uh, trying to maintain as close as production. It's very expensive, you know, because you have to build the same servers, you have to maintain it. If it goes down, you have to maintain it, you have to update. I don't know if you have a database update you have to do in staging, in production. So it's very expensive. It's people looking after it. You need to anonymize the data. You need to, yeah, too many things to do. All of this effort and costs, instead of putting in staging, we invest it in production. So what we do, we harness more before and after. Okay. So how do you do it before? Before you do like, for instance, feature flags, right? So when you deploy, you instead of like, you, you could deploy like unfinished features. Yeah. If they are behind a feature flag, that's fine. Okay. Right? So you are constantly integrating into production and make sure everything works together in production. Okay. So you hide the feature and once this feature is ready, you just turn on the flag and then it's available for everyone and it's working. And you know it's working because it's already in production. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, interesting, yeah, yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. That was going to be my big question actually around how do, you, how do you know then until you've actually put it out there that it is working? But yeah, that's a clever way of doing it. Yeah. So we've got feature flags and then we are quite big on test-driven development. Uh, and when we do TDD, so we write the test first. And when we write the test, it's not about like unit tests. You, you know, we. It's funny because at the beginning, when we had the new engineers coming in on board, we are were talking about unit tests, integration tests, etc., a test, etc. But actually, when you do TDD in a mono env, we call it mono env, mono environment production only. Um, when you do that, you get away from unit and. Uh, Integration test, there is no unit, there is just behavior tests, right? It's like a like use case test. How can we replicate locally, maxim, like the maximum as you can, the behavior that will be in production? Obviously, you can't, right? As I said, like already, but you do the maximum. So, for instance, we have end to end tests. We're using like Test Cafe for our front end, okay. but we like automated testing that will go through the screens and then click on all the buttons. But we write the test as is is a use case. So, for instance, the candidate will connect the bank account, and then we go through all the screens and making sure it goes through all the screens. And every time we run the CI/CD, it runs through this test again and again and again. And if you break something, it's easy because the test will break. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So, and we try to also hit production API as much as we can. So we have front-end and back-end separated. And, and if we can't really replicate sometimes, you know, for instance, like we can't connect to a bank account, obviously it's hard. Yeah. So what we do, we mock. But okay. we always try to think when we write tests outside in. So always think, how can we be close to the use case? And if we can't, then we remove bits and we mock where we can, like okay. where we can't really reproduce. Yeah. But we don't rely mocks because mocks are not the real production. Sure. And so, yeah, we rely on those tests everywhere. So everything is tested. Like we don't even look at code coverage, um, but I did a little exercise trying to look at what was our code coverage. And even without thinking about code coverage, the metric per se, right? We are focusing more on good tests. We have a coverage of more than 80% of the code. That's amazing. Um, and then in some like projects, we have like 95%. Wow. Because that denim is, uh, yeah, a lot of people would aspire to get to, aren't they? Yeah. So obviously you need to exclude like all the scripts and et cetera, but yeah, 95%. Uh, we have some missing bits and you always miss something, course, right? Yeah. You can't be like 100% perfect. But every time we add an if, before adding this if, we think, okay, let's write the test. Yeah. So, and when we review PR, like we have people like looking at it, have you added a test? You can't approve if you haven't changed a test because that means you've changed something in production that we won't be able to reproduce and measure if it's like working the next time. Sure. Yeah. Wow. That is amazing. Do you know what I really uh, love about that answer and especially the, the first part of the answer was you, you kind of, rather than just delving straight into the, this is how we do it from a, you know, an engineering perspective, it started with the word mindset. And I think that's really key. Um, and just just sort of hearing you talk there, I was thinking about you know I guess similar to like a you know the difference between like a free climber and a and a rock climber that's got the got the harness and got the rope. You know you're going to be concentrating <laughs> a lot more if you're the free climber without any support or any or any kind of uh, rope to kind of hold you in place. And I think like you say that that sort of instilling the right mindset because really what it's doing it's really sharpening their the the mindset and and focusing on best engineering practices from the get go isn't it and that's that's kind of you know the one of the, the huge positives I suppose that all engineers that are working in that kind of environment in theory you know they should should really be developing and and you know growing a lot quicker and adapting a lot the right kind of mindset because you know there isn't that safety net I'm pretty sure you obviously do have those like you talked about the, the hidden flags etc but um uh, but yeah, I think it's it's incredible that you know it's, it's sort of sharpening that. Um, we've spoken quite a bit about. Well, I can see a lot of the, the positives there from the way you're working. Are there any potential downsides or negatives, in your opinion, of the way you're working in this sort of uh, you know live production environment um, that you would you wouldn't necessarily have if you were going through the staging, let's say? Yeah, I will answer the question. Can you just go back on mindset? I think uh, one of the change in mindset or behavior of like. Uh, engineers, one of the biggest change is they are releasing smaller and smaller pull requests. Mm. So when you're in staging, it's fine to have these big 20 files, 30 files, like keeping all your features in, in staging, you know, and, and then you release it and then it will be tested in staging. Mm. Now it's like, oh, I'm going to add a new database field, right? I'm going to this new if, but I'm not very sure about it. Mm. And now they are like looking at more the riskiest thing to do and how can we minimize it. And so they now they really like very small PRs. It could be like for sometimes like a five line change, yeah. you know, the tests. So the test is a bit bigger always, but then like the real actual implementation is like five lines mm. and that's it. It's like, how will it behave in production? Yeah. Like when we have, I don't know, one million rows, when we do searching on a, like on a field. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's a, one of, of the biggest change in mindsets we have. Mm. To go back to your question, I think it's, I think it's um, trade-offs, right? Um, production only, like mono-end, works well for us. Maybe it won't work like for other people, but it's all about trade-offs. Like I prefer to deal. So the, the one of the issues, for instance, we have is we are always have to be backward compatible. For instance, it's really hard. Yeah. You know, sometimes you want to do a kind of a get rid of the past. You know, do a not a big bang, but I don't know, let's say there is a, you make a change in the screen, then you want to change in the API. Now you have to version the API. Yeah. You have to make sure it works before. 
Yeah, where like if you can stop the deployment, you just like uh, your production, you stop everything, you put everything in prod, and then you release it, and then done, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You kind of like delete all code, but now we have to delete the code like as we go, right? Yes, of course. Yeah. Um, also, like because it's zero downtime, like how do you upgrade a Postgres database, right? Now you have to make sure like everything is correct. Like sometimes it's harder. It feels like some some bits are feel slower. Yeah. Um, but the down those downsides are actually making it more stable overall. Yeah. Not really downsides, I guess. Either. They're just sort of making yeah work, work a bit more thoroughly. Yeah, and also like it adds other like uh, skill sets, you know. Because I said like we do more on testing on before and etc. But yeah. you have to do also more on after. So you have to be, have a very good observability of your production environment. Mm -hmm. So for instance, at Comfer, all our components have our uh, have metrics and we follow them and we have monitoring dashboard everywhere. Uh, I don't know, I think we have 15 dashboards for our components, something like that. We measure them by like uh, if, they, if they work properly, like the, the load and yeah, we have alerting everywhere, like health checks. Um, so it, it requires more DevOps, you know, more observability that sometimes engineers don't have, you know. Um, so yeah, um, also it's hard to get people having this mindset, you know, yeah, having an yeah. end-to-end mindset. Um, but it's the first time a lot of engineers that presumably join will have worked in that kind of environment. There's not many companies that are probably out there doing it. So it must be, I guess it's probably a, yeah, a killing a cure in the same way. I guess a lot of people are probably very excited to work in that kind of environment. But like I say, maybe yeah, need to slightly adapt their mindset before they're capable of doing so. Yeah, so the first time I got introduced to mono environment, I, th I think I always liked, the, I mean, I didn't have a name for it. Right, but uh, until I joined Fluidly, you know, I was always like, I wanted to push things in production, you know, like deliver value quickly, and uh, and then like, yeah, it's like it's working for clients and it's amazing without like any issue with quality. And the first time I got introduced to uh, mono environment was at Fluidly, the CTO there, Mike Hancock, like pushed for it. And as you, as you said, like the mindset of people. So we had some people who were like very like cautious or like wary, but like oh. It won't work, yeah. but actually, you need a mix of those people, right? People are a big cowboy, you know, like, oh yeah, let's deliver it and let's do things, <laughs> yeah. and it doesn't yeah. really matter, you know. Point, yeah. And those people are very cautious because, uh, and same at Solid State, I, I had like some people really cautious, but actually, you have to listen to them because they will make it work even better. Because mm. if you have only cowboys, like. It won't work. Like mm. you will push things in production, but like it will fall apart. Yes, yes. But if you have like a mix of those two people, like those two kind of people, then you can make it work very well um, because you can listen all the concerns and and you like harness at everywhere like your production environment. Um, yes. Yeah, I think that's a great point actually, and it, it shows again the, the value of a diverse team, uh, especially in that kind of scenario. They different personalities sort of counterbalancing each other and and providing that uh, perspective. Um, I guess with that in mind, do you, uh, even if you're recruiting for maybe one sort of temperament or one experience type or the other, are there certain characteristics and attributes, a sort of you know, common thread that runs throughout all of the people that you you feel do work well in the team? Any kind of um, yeah attributes that you look for consistently, irrespective of which side of the spectrum they may be on? Yeah, I think one thing that is quite common is caring, uh, caring about product caring about other people too like when when I see like people are in mono environment that are quite invested you know into caring about our clients it's like yeah we have this power of releasing 20 times a day and when you approve a PR you have the power of like releasing production without oversight of anyone right uh, I'm not here like looking at all the pull requests no it's, it's, it, it won't work right if you want to scale um but it's just like, yeah, people are making sure everything works correctly and they have this end-user mindset always, uh, customer in mind. And as I said, like with observability, like they care about the data now, like is the feature working in production? Like when, like we have a lot of reporting too, like we are very data-driven mm. when we make decisions. And so I can see like, People just going into Mixpanel or like we have AWS Quick Sites. They just go into it and then they review the data and yeah. they see like either like feature that if they just delivered, they, they are actually it's actually working or not, and is it driving you know revenue? 
Mm. So, and caring, again, like about other people because, again, like mono environment cannot work without listening to each other. Yeah. And so, and trying to refine the process and make sure we, and we had some post-mortems, right, where you deliver something, actually it breaks. Um, uh, we can talk about that. Um, yeah, actually, let's talk about yeah, it. It's like, probably got yeah, a good yeah, time yeah, to yeah. talk about how you reflect on things that maybe haven't quite gone to plan. So, yeah, so, yeah, that's why I like caring about people. So we do post-mortems. Um, so it happens, you know, like nothing is like 100% sure, you know, even with staging. Um, and I would, again, argue like with staging, you have a false sense of security because, again, staging is not prod. And, yeah, so when it doesn't go as planned, we do post-mortems. So generally we do them uh, as soon as we fix the bug. So let's say we had a downtime, for instance, we released something and we had a downtime and we fixed the downtime and then we jump on a post-mortem straight away, right? And we go like a forensics analysis. Okay. So it's first it's blameless. We don't care like who did what. Why? Because some like when you do a post-mortem, that's why we go very deep into the post-mortem. Sometimes you, someone, right, will push a change and that will be the trigger of the downtime. But actually, it's not, it's just a trigger. Like you have a big background, a lot of decisions that led to this situation where the last engineer managing the request is actually the trigger. It's a very pragmatic way of looking at it. It's not, not many engineering managers that would think that. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, like, yeah, you make tons of decisions. And maybe like some, like six months ago, we said, oh, that's fine, you know, like nobody's using it. And then like, oh, now we're making a change and we forgot that six months ago, we said like, oh, actually, we should pay attention to that, right? Mm. So that's why we go back as much as we can. Uh, but yeah, people have a tendency to start the post-mortem and, oh, I merged the pull request and it went wrong. No, what was before? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, love, I love that. Yeah. You go through all of that. Uh, and then we say like, yeah, what are the action learned, you know, and we need like, a, a, again, diversity, like all the people in the team to look at it and say, oh, you know, I think we should do that because like, I don't know, I think we should add a, a more monitoring or maybe for infrastructure changes, we need like two, two reviews instead of one, you know, or we need like a bit more upfront like design next time. Mm-hmm. But we try to take pragmatic approaches, you know, we don't want to go over process after that because... Sometimes when there is a post-mortem, like everybody, you know, panics. It's like, oh, now we need like a, a new like a process and we'll have extra, like 10 approvals before making change. Like, no, 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 like it happens, you know, like maybe one little tweak can actually make the entire process safer. Yeah. Let's not like, over-engineer things. We still need to keep our velocity. Mm. We trust people, like people learn from our mistakes. So yeah, we, we, we really make sure like we don't do it again, obviously. Yeah. And those little tweaks will work, but we don't have to rethink the entire process, you know? Yeah, 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 it's great. And I think you know, that, that, what you mentioned there, that sort of safe space, I suppose, um, is akin to what we were talking about a bit earlier with the, the most valuable attributes of a leader, in my opinion, is, you know, the ability to kind of reframe failure for the people in the business, because you know, certainly in recruitment anyway, probably one of the biggest blockers, I think, to people making progress or even taking action you know, is that kind of fear of what if or what happens and <clears throat> if I do this wrong, you know, in the more draconian recruitment companies out there that shall, shall not be named, um, you know, there's a real palpable sense of, you know, aftermath or what's going to happen as a result. And I think, you know, like you say, having that, that ability to sort of wrap your arms and create that sort of orb of safe space for your team to really actually go, well, look, mistake is the, the blame's almost academic it's actually the mistake is what it is and let's sort of pick that apart and and all learn from it and i think that reframing of failure is uh yeah is 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 fantastic it's a really key thing and um i can thank my like uh, my cto at Fridley at the time because um i had like a i did a big mistake um so it, it was interesting in, in the end it, it went well right uh, we didn't have to pay anything but so I joined the company and I, as I said, like I love reporting and product, very mind, like product mindset, etc. And so I was tasked quite like in the first month or two, so during the probation period, I was tasked to bring some analytics and reporting. And so we use like um, um, a tool called Segment, 
So, you know, yeah. it's a tool where you push an event there and then you can dispatch the event into different, like, destinations. Yes. Uh, so that's quite nice, right? Um, so I started to implement that, uh, look at you know, the pricing and et cetera, but didn't pay much attention. And so what 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 really was doing is, like, um, generating cash flow forecasting. And so we wanted to measure between the, like, starting the generation of a cash flow forecast to the end and see how long it takes, you know, and where can we at different points and where can we refine, right, with this uh, process and bringing faster value to the client. Um, and so I didn't, like, I introduced segments into the back end. Generally, it's more front-end thing, you know, where you mix panel, you click on events and et cetera per client, per user. And so I bring it into the back end. Um, but I didn't pay attention that basically... I was generating a new unique ID every time a cash flow was generated. Oh. <laughs> but the problem is segment is billing you on number of clients, I mean, number of um, IDs, ideas. different IDs you have, yeah. right? So like the, I don't, I, don't, I don't remember the pricing tier now, but it was like for up to 1,000 and then up to 10,000 and then up to extra. And so I remember that day where the CTO came in the, it's like, Paolo, Paolo, stop segment now, now. It's like, <laughs> It's top segment, like don't ask questions. And then he, go, he went back. It's like, all right, so we stop segment, everything turned off. And then he took me into <laughs> into like a one to one. He said, like, all right, we have a bill of fifty thousand for segment. It's like, oh no. Um, it's like I'm all right. So I'm two months in. It's my probation period. You know, uh, actually, it was his probation period too. He joined like a month before me. Oh really? Okay. So we were like, I was like very stressed. You know, I was like. I'm joining a startup and now like in two months I'm, I'm making a big mistake and it's over, right? Um, and yeah, he was a, quite a good negotiator actually. He is still, uh, of course. And so in the end, like he talked to Segment and Segment said, oh, okay, it's a common mistake. So we're going to wipe off the bill, you know, 50,000 and you're going to pay normal 150, like whatever we were paying at the tier. So in the end, he got like, okay, you know. Oh, um, good work. Yeah, 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 good work for him, yeah, negotiating that. And and yeah, like, and it was my first thing as, you know, failure, in like my, my first real big mistake, you know, like, um, where but where the CTO like said, okay, don't do that again. Or um, but to me, but also to, you know, everybody in the team, like we did this post-mortem together and we were like, oh yeah, like it can happen. Uh, don't yeah we, we it's a team effort it's a team yeah. problem yeah. and actually uh, yeah thank him because then I, I could thrive later on that really fantastic that's a great example and I think yeah it's a great example of strong leadership isn't it it's, uh, it's leadership that not only resolved the problem and, and thankfully yeah sorted out but but you you know you could he could respond in two ways and you could have internalized that in two ways and you know take that with you into the rest of your career and thankfully you know it felt like sort of in the end a positive learning experience but um but I think that that often makes I always say an expert in any field is somebody that's made every single mistake in that field you know to to then help others and uh it feels like that was a uh, quite a shaping experience for your leadership style uh, yeah I'm cost conscious yeah. a lot <laughs> <laughs> I still bet yeah absolutely no cool well uh look Pally, fantastic um episode today thanks very much for coming in and having a chat with us really enjoyed it and uh yeah re really excited to uh see where confir goes from here but uh, massive respect for what you've achieved so far and and uh you know for the way you guys are going about things and um i like to end every episode uh with the same question which you may know by now which is if you have one favorite piece of advice that you've ever received or given um, that you kind of carry with you throughout your life that you would uh, you would pass on to your your fellow human um, what would that be for you yeah I thought it, um, a bit of that one it's a hard one too uh, I've got like two but uh, I will cool. take I'll, I'll give you two you I get two take. okay thank you uh, I think the first one would be like from my father actually okay. he always like told me do what you have to do before what you want to do uh, and I think it's uh, in business you know, startup is really important actually uh, we always have to you know we are engineers, I mean, like even if we are leaders, like we are tech people, right? and we want to introduce a new tech and etc. But that's what we want to do and not what we have to do. Mm. Um, so it's very important to focus first on what we have to do, uh, like yeah. a business selling and etc. And in, like same point actually, it's like almost same point. It's like about 
So building something is only half of the work. Selling it is actually the, the biggest thing. Um, I, yeah, I have this other example. Like when I was at Soprasaya, I had this digital innovation team. We were building, so we were discussing blockchain. You know, we were like introducing blockchain to the to the clients and etc. And one of the clients came in and said, "Oh, can we do this on the blockchain?" And why, like the salesperson said, "Yeah, of course, we're gonna do the blockchain." And uh, and I, with my engineer's eyes, I was like, um, "We don't really need the blockchain," you know. So uh, and after the meeting, I said, "We don't need the blockchain. Like." We can do use a relational database and that's it. Yeah. And then this sales like look at me and say, you know, Paolo, it's not about blockchain, it's about selling. <laughs> like, yeah. all right, that's a great actually that's a great thing, right? Mm. Uh, tech is important, but again it's like what is the value and what do you sell to and even if you provide value, what what is the message you put out there to clients and how do you sell it? Mm. Um, so yeah, that's why building is only half of the work. The, the rest is about selling your products. Yeah, I think that's a, it's a, a lovely way to end. Although I do like the fact that you didn't, uh, you know, you're one of those those people that you know didn't oversell just because you could oversell, and it sounded like you were, you were at least uh, not over engineering the solution for the sake of it. Which again, I think goes back to your mindset of what you mentioned right at the beginning. But uh, but I definitely take your point on that. I think that's a, that's a good way to end. So, well, look, nothing remains but to say thank you again for coming in. I really enjoyed the chat, and uh, yeah, please come back on again at some point in the future. I'd love to hear how you guys are getting on and uh, disrupting the world of um, employment and background checks. And uh, yeah, I'll keep my eye very closely on uh, on your progress. Thank you for having me. Cheers. Bye for now.